Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Let's be honest. The first place our family turns to when we're looking for a quick getaway is always Airbnb. I know we can find an amazing place to stay at the beach, like St. Simons on the Georgia coast, for instance. Mm -hmm. It's one of our favorite spots. That's what comes to mind, Matt, when I'm thinking about travel. And while you're staying at someone else's home, have you ever thought about what you could be doing with your own home? That's right. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you are away, because that is all you need to become an Airbnb host. It's a lot easier than you think, and you don't need to Airbnb your entire house. You could just host your extra spare room if you got one. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today, we're answering your listener questions. It's Monday, which means we get to hear directly from listeners. We're taking listener questions today. For instance, uh, we're going to talk about the most important insurance product that is probably not on your radar. Listener is actually, it's not really a question as much of a comment that she's making. We're going to get to that. We're going to talk about budgeting on a variable income, as well as how much you're going to be paying in taxes when you sell your house. That plus a couple other things that we're going to get to today, yeah. my friend. First, let's get into something another listener sent our way, and I, I love this because I feel like the How to Money community. There's so much crowdsourcing that goes on, and yeah. like the it feels the, more like a community as opposed to coming from on high <laughs> from Joel, right? Not from me. I don't. know. No, I'm not like I'm Moses. Not, on I'm the not making any laws, passing out the Ten Commandments <laughs> or anything like that. But so uh, yeah, th- that's what the Facebook group is so great about. If you are on Facebook and you're not. In the How to Money Facebook group, you should totally join. I think we're at like 11,000 members, and everyone just helps each other out regularly. It's super sweet. But then we get listener emails pretty regularly, multiple a day, I would say, on average. And we got one from Steven that stood out, and he mentioned something that I had not heard of. I'm like, I feel like I got my ear to the ground when it comes to what's going on in the financial fintech space. Well, it turns out that Credit Bureau Experian is getting into the banking game. Oh, yeah. And... I was shocked to I see that. all that email. Yeah, thanks, Stephen, for for sending that our way. Because, I mean, first of all, why would you do business any more business than you have to with a credit bureau than yeah. <laughs> than, than you're required we're, to? We're already basically forced to against our will. Exactly. But they're calling it like the smart money account, and it's being touted as a way to boost your credit score because we're going to count certain transactions. To increasing your credit score, but then like right below that claim, there's like this giant asterisk, <laughs> and they're like, "By the way, not all expenses, not all purchases go towards yeah. that that boost." It's, uh, it's basically results it is, may vary. It is their <laughs> Experian Boost product that they're trying to kind of put yeah. alongside now a sort of banking product that they a proprietary banking product they're releasing. But it's crummy, and and like yeah. I, I think at most it's, it's supposed to be like what maybe ten or fifteen points if it works perfectly. Right, and the, and the thing is, you can do the Experian Boost thing without signing up for their banking account so you don't even have to you know do have a sort of a relationship with them in order to get that benefit but the other problem is like there's one you're doing business with uh, a company that hasn't really proven itself to be very trustworthy and then also you're not really getting paid much of anything on the money that you're saving inside of that uh, on bank bag i think was zero percent interest. i couldn't find anything i literally searched and went to multiple sites so i'm gonna assume it's i'm gonna assume it's zero somewhere between zero and 0.1 (laughs) percent yeah i mean because my (laughs) guess is offerings if it was solid they'd be touting it so yeah uh, yeah and it's nowhere to be found which means it sucks yeah if you've been listening (laughs) 
for any length of time. You know that Matt and I, we think the credit scoring system, it's important to play by the rules, but the credit bureaus are pretty awful at what they do. It's a game we all have to play, but don't do business, uh, any more business than you have to with these credit bureaus. So now that, yeah, Experian has a bank, but it's a bank, I would say, um, ranks up there with Wells Fargo in the, in the banks Honestly, I would least yes. want to do business with. Yeah, seriously. There are plenty of other great options uh, for you to check out, like CIT, who's offering north of 5% on their platinum savings account. There are a lot of great options out there, but CIT, they are certainly leading the pack. Yeah, and experience just not one of the places no. we want you to go yeah. when it comes to banking. You don't need to consider them at yeah. all. But all right, Matt, let's move on. Let's mention the beer we're having on this episode. It's called Malpais Stout, I guess, by uh, La Cumbre Brewing. This one is uh, the last beer we have from our friend Bob over in New Mexico. Our last New Mexican beer. Yeah, we'll give our thoughts on this one at the end of the episode. But let's go ahead and get to those listener questions. We've got a lot of good ones to get to today. If you have a question for us, we'd love to hear it. We'd love to take it maybe next week. You can find simple instructions for how to submit your listener question at howtomoney.com slash ask. It's basically recording a, yourself on the, the app on your phone, sending it over our way via email. Pretty simple. But Matt, the first question for today is about how to handle your finances when you're self-employed. Hi, Joel and Matt. This is Teresa from American Canyon, California. My question is on budgeting. I'm self-employed, but I would like to do a budget but I'm not sure where to start. My income can vary as much as two to $3,000 a month. I want to be able to do a budget without having to go back over the last two years and average out what I'm making and what I'm spending. Is there a better way? Thanks a lot, and I really enjoy your show. I've really learned a lot. All right, Teresa, thank you for reaching out. And yes, there is a better way. And, uh, you know, yeah, budgeting on a variable income. This is a common question, but I think it's one we haven't tackled in a while. And it's an important one, too, for, for all of the, the solopreneurs out there, for all of those folks who are taking more of the entrepreneurial path. When you forsake that W-2 lifestyle, it comes with some of that uncertainty about how much and when it is that you're going to get paid. Yeah. Having been self-employed for over 15 years is something I take for granted because, yeah, what is a W-2, Joel? What, what, what is a regular paycheck? That, what are company benefits? <laughs> These are things. I know. You've never really got to experience that, uh, them. I guess we do have very our short. own personal or our, our own company benefits, but it's a little bit different when you're wearing both the employer hat and the employee hat, yeah. uh, but something that you need, yeah, that is worth addressing when you are self-employed, well, like I know Teresa. When I went from W-2 income to kind of going full-time with the podcast, that was something that felt like it was looming over my head, the irregularity of the income. Mm -hmm. It was like, well, is there going to be enough? And then it was also, well, how often is it going to come in? And what's what's the payment cycle going to be like? Because we get paid quarterly. And so it just changes from it's essentially like clockwork, having that paycheck being socked into your account every two weeks. And so there's a mental shift that has to take place when you get paid on a different cycle. That's what they call the direct deposit, right, Joel? Yeah, which was <laughs> incredible. Like I, To me, part of me was like, you know what? I appreciate the certainty so much that I would almost rather make less and just have that certainty. Granted, that's not rational, but it, <laughs> but I well, guess there's a fear associated with that. And I do think that's something that keeps some folks from stepping out on their own. Yeah, is that uncertainty? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So let's talk about how to. But now that you've had a taste of the freedom, there's no yeah, going back. Well, is there? Let's talk about some of the things <laughs> that you and I have both done to kind of make that irregularity way over my our heads quite a bit less and 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 just how to deal with it in general well the first tip is is really to have extra savings on hand this can allow you to smooth out your income artificially and you know we typically recommend having something like three to six months worth of expenses stuffed into a savings account for most people and if you're self-employed that number should be on the higher end of things so let's say you're fairly frugal dual income, no kids household, and three months should be enough for you to feel comfortable in most cases. But if you're Teresa or Matt and Joel, that is, you know, we, we think that being self-employed is worth, it's worth the trade-offs you have to make, but in order to not freak out about uh, a month or a quarter where your income is not quite as substantial as you hoped it would be, this is a crucial step to take is to have a bigger buffer that allows you to to tap those funds in leaner times and then uh, funnel more of your income into that emergency emergency fund to beef it back up during fatter times, right? You might even want to consider upping that amount to something like nine to 12 months worth of expenses in savings. That sounds like a lot of cash to have on hand, and it is, but as long as it's not preventing you from reaching other financial milestones, it can be psychologically helpful as a self-employed person to kind of boost your confidence that no matter what comes your way, you are 
are good to go. And so, Matt, I mean, just based on kind of my personal finances, all the stuff that I've got going on with, with rental properties, with self-employ- self-employment, I err on that side, even though may- maybe maybe it's too cash heavy. But for me, it, it feels right. Oh, absolutely, man. Yeah. And like Teresa mentioned, like there's really no need to comb back over all of her financial transactions and expenses over the past two years in order to come up with a a nice little budget. It sounds like overkill to me. (laughs) I think an easy path forward in getting started with your budget is to simply look back over, let's say, the last three months and then have that be the starting point for your new budget. You're able to essentially base that on actual expenses that you've incurred recently. And chances are those recent expenses are more likely going to be reflective of what you're going to spend, I think, moving forward rather than what it is that you happen to have spent two years ago and, and having that average in. Yeah, let's be honest. Prices have gone up over the last two that years, That is too. also so, true. Yeah, and, three to four or five months of expenses are going to be way more reflective. Infl- inflation plays a large role, yeah. for sure, when it comes to maybe trying to create a budget from scratch. And just lifestyle. Our lifestyle changes. Sure. So you got yeah, to different values. factor that in. Don't factor in past you. Factor in current you. And then on the income side of the ledger, I'm guessing, Teresa, that you have a pretty good idea of what you're likely going to make next month compared to what you've made recently, what you made last month. So just start there. And it's not going to be perfect right out of the gate, but that's just a good place to start. And to be honest, it's never going to be, quote unquote, perfect, because there are always going to things that pop up. Life, it happens, but don't let that keep you from making strides towards some of the different financial goals that you have. And when you are able to measure your expenses and your income, what gets measured gets improved. I think that's the maxim, isn't that? Like measured gets managed, maybe? Maybe. Something, something like that. Something but bottom line, the ability just to start tracking this and start setting some goals, even though they might be off by a, a large amount, it's going to, in the end, result in you uh, achieving your financial goals faster. Yeah. I mean, I think the number one thing is, like, yeah, to look at recent expenses, recent income. And then and it's also crucial to have that bigger buffer that's going to prevent a lot of the worrying about what's going to happen with your money in the future. Because if you have a significant amount set aside in savings, you're just not freaking out about the possibility of a down month or even a down year. And uh, another one of the ways to smooth out those bumps in the road, like when you're paid late by a company you're working with, which happens a lot when you're a solopreneur, you're like, oh, I put in the work and then I've given them 90 days to pay guess what we're at day 87 are they gonna pay on time and and those are the kind of things that you have to contend with when you're working for yourself is uh, the other thing is to really tweak your expenses so that you don't find yourself going over budget when that happens so uh, at least until you get to that six month savings mark a bare bones budget having one at least created is can be incredibly helpful and then you can move over to it in times of need we talked about that in depth in episode 362 back in the day but essentially what we're talking about here is having some flexibility when it comes to your monthly expenses right being able to to vary them a little and live leaner should circumstances require it and you know you're not you're not hoping to have to live on your bare, bone, bare bones budget in perpetuity. That is not the goal. That's no way to live over the long period of time. But it is a helpful uh, way to be able to rein in those expenses should circumstances require it on yeah, basically flip, being able to flip on a dime. And so, of course, there are some payments and expenses that you're going to maintain no matter what. Like, got to pay your rent <laughs> or your mortgage every single month. But that's, of course, still included in your bare bones budget that you can meander over to. But just know that there are other places that you can, of course, flex other places you can cut back on. Eating out is one of the easiest ones. Being flexible is important. And it's particularly important, I think, when your income is irregular and especially when you don't have much of that savings buffer uh, on hand yet. Totally. Yeah. I will say that can definitely be helpful. Uh, However, if what we're talking about here is just a variable income where you know that like, bottom line, like I, I always end up with enough money at the end of the year, not and who actually knows if that's going to be the case, right? But based on previous years, if you know that at some point you are going to have not only enough on hand, but more than enough, I think a bare bones budget, yes, it can be helpful in order to sock away a little bit more money to, to spend a little bit less. But this is where having more cash on hand, hand, having more of that cash cushion comes into play because yes, there are some psychological wins by paring back a little bit. But if you know say at the end of the year, you're going to get some massive bonus and that's going to be more than enough to cover all your expenses, then it's not necessarily required for you to to, to scale back on your yeah. expenses. It's good to know that you can. And I think that's the real power. That's like the strength of the bare bones budget is to, it's like training. It's like running, you know, you see people running with like the vests on, Joel's thinking about getting a vest uh, <laughs> <laughs> to do some, to do some rucking. 
But by doing that, it allows you to be stronger in the instance where, oh, in reality, I actually do have to pare back on, uh, on, on my expenses. Yeah, most of the time, you're not going to need to do some sort of 10-mile walk with 40 pounds on your back. But like to know <laughs> that you can means that exactly. you can excel kind of without <laughs> the back on, right? That's why you're doing it. And so, yeah, yeah I, I think you're right. I think just by creating the bare bones budget by knowing it exists and knowing you can turn to it that alleviates some of the pressure and it's it's pretty rare that people need to turn to it unless it's like a, a case of job loss right mm -hmm. or something more significant not usually just because it was a down month totally uh, but especially like you said if you've got that that savings buffer built up uh, significantly exactly yeah so from personal experience i will say there are times when our emergency fund or not even our emergency fund, but just the the margin that we dip into when because we get paid irregularly here with the podcast, Joel. And even though I know that by the time we get to the end of the year, I'm going to we're going to have more than enough on hand. The months we're basically we're not getting paid. And I do where we are having to dip into the stockpile, the little war chest that we've accumulated. We do spend less during those months because yeah. it's sort of like this natural reaction of like, oh, it it's not fun to it's dip into your savings. Psychologically, it's not fun. And so the ability to scale back a little bit, even though I don't necessarily have to, there's a, there's a psychological win that you're able to experience in that way. Granted, we're not scaling back in such a way that people are like, oh man, they're really cutting back. Are they okay? <laughs> but there are these small tweaks that you can make to remind yourself that, yeah, in reality, you aren't making a ton of money this month. Or in fact, maybe <laughs> maybe none. Yeah, You don't have to like sell all your earthly possessions. No, uh, yeah, you don't want to do anything too short-sighted. Yeah. Uh, but it is kind of fun to modify your behavior a little bit. That way you're not completely insulated from the fact that your income is uh, does go up and down if you are self-employed. Same thing when we talk about moving the thermostat, right? It's like you kind of want to feel the pain just a little bit. You want to. Yeah. That's why we hate budget billing. Is because we want you. To, we want you're feel insulated the pain. from those actual expenses. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, okay. Th and what this really makes me think too is uh, a story from Genesis in the Bible when Joseph he's he's worked for Pharaoh, Mister Technicolor Jacket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so so he has this dream that there's there's going to be uh, fat cows and lean cows and ultimately what he ends up he ends up interpreting this dream and it means that there's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of lean times of, of famine essentially in the country and so he does this great job of you know, building barns storing up during those fattened years when things are going well so that when the famine arises guess what all the other countries even around egypt they've got they're, they're like trying to try to buy wheat from the egyptians because they've done such a good job of stockpiling and this is kind of the i think the mentality that you want to have on uh, when you budget on a varying income like and, and it makes it difficult if you have too little in savings if you haven't prepared for the rainy days hopefully your income continues to grow right and the variable income is just becomes this snowball that grows and becomes bigger and you continue to crush it in your career but we're not guaranteed that and so it's so nice to have that a little war chest a savings pile mm -hmm. so that those lean times don't actually overwhelm us and take us off course and prevent us from reaching those bigger financial goals that we've got totally it kind of fills in those valleys a little yeah. bit and so i one other tip teresa i guess like from a practical standpoint i think what can be helpful because it sounds like you're creating your first budget and if it sounds overwhelming, perhaps to also create a, a whole other budget, right, where you're creating the bare bones budget, I think just even simply on a separate sheet of paper, like listing out some of the expenses that you have and then ranking them in priority of things that you have to pay, but then things that would be nice to dedicate your resources towards. That way, when the time comes, from a practical standpoint, you're not scrambling trying to figure out, well, shoot, I don't, I don't have enough money on hand. Well, if there is a situation that arises when you don't actually have enough money, You've got basically like a set of instructions to guide you that you were able to establish maybe during a period of time when you were feeling less stressed, maybe when you're able to thoughtfully think through it. But then simultaneously, I think it's really helpful to have a set of instructions on hand that can help to create like this order of operations when you have excess funds. And this is literally something that Kate and I created years ago of, OK, what is it that we actually want to do with our money beyond day-to-day, month-to-month kind of living. And for us, it was typically, okay, there's the Roth IRA bucket. So no matter what, let's go ahead and fill that thing up. But then after that, for us, typically, it was real estate. It was saving up money. That's going to be a down payment for another investment property. That way, in those months where we did have excess funds, we weren't tempted to squander that money. We weren't yeah. tempted to just like guess what? We're going to go to Europe. <laughs> it, was, it was a preemptive decision that we made to funnel those dollars towards some of the different goals that yeah. we had. That's like the other side of the coin, right? Is yeah, when you're exactly. Saying, like, hey, the 
the downside you want to you want to save like a pessimist it's kind like of like Morgan triage says, right mm-hmm. and so you want to have enough in in account in case the worst thing happens but then hopefully you're like oh variable income guess what made 25k more than i thought i was going to this year what am i going to do with that and so you should have an idea for where that money goes beyond just once you have that savings buffer built up hopefully some of it's going into something like a solo 401k right and uh but but then some of the others if you reach certain benchmarks i think you should feel free to take that trip to europe too just make sure you have like matt said you're, you're pre-planning and you're thinking about it and you're not just like throwing money at whatever sounds nice in the moment so exactly uh, yeah Teresa, best of luck to you though it's uh budgeting on a variable income takes a little bit of getting used to but you got this you can make it happen totally Matt, we got more uh, to get to on this episode though including we're gonna talk about like what happens when you sell a home do you owe tax some people will we'll actually get to that and more right after this When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. That's why you listen to this podcast. And if you're looking to upgrade your wallet, you need to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. If you're paying for vacations with whatever card is in your wallet, you could be missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. You can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade, lounge access... Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Kachava is the all-in-one superfood shake made up of high-quality plant-based nutrients. It's got greens, superfruits, plant proteins, antioxidants, adaptogens, probiotics, and in other words, everything your body craves to feel your best. This is where Kachava really earns their 52,000 plus five-star reviews. It tastes amazing. It's creamy and smooth with just water, and it comes in five delicious flavors. You can choose from chocolate, vanilla, chai, matcha, and coconut acai. Kachava is offering How to Money listeners 10% off for a limited time. I've been using Kachava in breakfast smoothies in the morning recently. It's just so nice to pack in a bunch of nutrients early in the a.m. in a way that's satisfying and energizing. So if you want to optimize your breakfast, your workout shake, be sure to check out Kachava. Just go to Kachava dot com slash how to money that's spelled k-a-c-h-a-v-a and get 10 percent off your first order that's k-a-c-h-a-v-a dot com slash how to money joel so we were just recounting our trip to scotland this is the trip that we took this time last year actually with some of our friends over the weekend and one of the highlights from edinburgh was stumbling upon the absolute best meat pie shop Mm -hmm. they were fresh out of the oven they had that perfectly flaky crust but guess what that serendipitous experience would never had happened if we'd stayed at a boring hotel we had found the perfect flat in the coolest part of town thanks to airbnb ah matt i'm still dreaming about those meat pies you're making my (laughs) you're making me drool and while turning to airbnb might be a no-brainer when you're looking to spend some money on travel it might not be the first thing you think of when you're looking to make some money Why let it sit empty, your house, when it could be earning extra income, though? It's the financially smart thing to do. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra dough. Yeah, that's right. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right, we are back from the break, and we've got a question from a listener, and they also happen to be new parents. Hi, Joel and Matt. This is Brianna from Louisville, Kentucky. Thank you so much for the podcast. Uh, It's been very helpful. I have a question about 529s. My husband and I recently had our first daughter in April, and we set up a 529 for her. Uh, We do plan to contribute a small amount monthly, but currently we're trying to decide what, I guess, the goal of the account would be as far as like a number. We don't want money to get stuck in the account if she was to get a scholarship or, you know, decide not to go with a four-year degree. Currently, we're thinking about capping that number at what the regulations say you can roll over to a Roth in the lifetime. It looks like that's maybe 35000 currently a year. So we're thinking maybe that should be our goal for the account. Would love your input in that and kind of what you think, if there's any other equation or anything else as far as determining like what the number should reach at the 529 account. Again, thank you so much for the podcast. It's been helpful. 
Matt, did you hear that cooing in the background? It was right on cue. Pretty sweet. I think she kind of reached down there and poked her. With her <laughs> <laughs> She's like, it's your chance to be on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you've done it. Uh, well, Brianna, thanks for your question and, and congrats on first kiddo. Uh, what a the best time, right? I just actually hung out with somebody last night who just has a six-month-old, and it is simultaneously the sweetest and the most sleep-deprived you'll ever <laughs> you'll ever be, right? Uh, I like seeing other folks who have babies yes. now. It's not something I plan to revisit. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, you might want to take some action on that front, my friend. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right, but how much should you actually contribute to a 529 account? We'll offer our, our best thoughts on that. You know, we, we've had to actually wade through similar questions in our own families, but first things first. We don't want to sound like hard-line, hard-nosed jerks, but the only time someone should really be contributing to a 529 plan is if they're already in Money Gear 7, is if they're in that upper echelon. They've achieved a lot of their other money goals that they've had set out in front of them, and it's not because we're anti-kids going to college. We want kids to go to college, or at least a lot of kids, but not every kid because blue-collar work and entrepreneurship are other great routes, right? It's also important. Right. But it's because we're pro you investing and saving enough to be able to retire. It's important to have most of your debt paid off and to be funneling a decent chunk of your income into tax-advantaged retirement Mm -hmm. accounts first. If you're not doing that, then you're uh, investing for your child, for their future college, for their future higher education needs, needs to be put on the back burner for the time being. That's right. And actually, we are much bigger fans now of 529 accounts these days than we were a year ago. That's largely because of the added flexibility that they now have. Unused funds for college can be rolled into a Roth IRA for your kiddo. They don't end up needing all that or even much of that money that you've socked away into that account. Uh, And that's thanks to the Secure Act 2.0. Yeah, we kind of did a whole episode detailing all of the changes to retirement accounts that happened in the Secure Act 2.0. But Mm -hmm. it's in the 529. The changes to those plans were some of the most significant. And for the first time, we're like, you know what? Yeah, Uh, we're kind of getting behind the 529 plans for more folks than just those who were like well, well on uh, far down the path. Uh, towards their financial and goals. Specifically for folks who really want like the generational wealth sort of thing. If that's a big focus of yours, well, the 529 early on in a child's life to Roth conversion combo can help make that happen. Yeah, it's a, it's a way to do that. But be sure to look into the finer points, into the details. But the main one uh, with 529s is that the account needs to have been opened for at least 15 years before you can start to turn those 529 dollars into Roth IRA dollars. And so what that means is getting some money into the 529 account now, even if it's just like 25 bucks, because that at least gets that clock ticking. That's something literally that I did with for Kate and I. I don't know why, but I, I thought, all right, 25 bucks to open an account and just to get the ball rolling. Now I know I've got the options way far down the road to be able to do something with that account. Were yeah. the rules to change, to have different goals that we might, I don't, I don't know, that's the thing. And so the ability to have that account the ability to get that thing open, in my mind, for 25 bucks is kind of a small price to pay for something that might end up benefiting us yeah. like in a major way down o- the road. Offers a lot of future flexibility. There's yeah. no reason not to open it and put some money in. E- even if you're not in Money Gear 7, you can do that step, right? Totally. But then once you get further along, that's when you can prioritize making even further contributions to yeah. that account on for your kid's behalf. And I think the, the, the minimum amounts vary depending on the different state plans, but I say 25 bucks because that's what the Georgia yeah. 529 plan uh, requires. Sometimes it's 20 bucks. Sometimes, it, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be Even better if, if all you got to do is stick in five bucks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, it's also important to mention, by the way, that you're not going to get smacked around from a tax perspective. If your brilliant child ends up getting like tons of scholarships, there's there is a 10% penalty for unqualified withdrawals on the earnings, not on your original contributions. But if your kid ends up getting a like let's say a $10,000 scholarship, for instance, it actually counts as a qualified withdrawal when you take out that amount from the 529 plan. So you could take 10k out of the 529 plan, 10k of those earnings. Because of that scholarship, it's still going to qualify as a qualified withdrawal. So the 10% penalty does not apply to those dollars that you're taking out. Basically, you're not penalized because of the scholarship, which is really important to know. It almost feels, if that were to be the case, it almost feels like a disincentive yes. to, for families to get out there and apply for scholarships. Because why would you do that if you've got all this money set aside in yeah. the 529 and you're going to get penalized on that? No. And in, in, in reality, you're not going to be penalized. Yeah, it would make sticking money into your 529 a lot more risky sure. uh, because it's hard to plan <laughs> for 
that kind of stuff. So it's nice to know that you're not penalized for that. And so, yeah, it basically means there's not as much risk as you might think of oversaving in that account. Plus, you can always let that money continue to grow for grad school, for that child, or for another kid that might come along, or even if you decide to go back to school yourself. So the you can change up the beneficiary. Yeah. Yep. So the 529 flexibility. It, it goes beyond just the Roth. It goes being uh, all the way to being able to change beneficiaries if you have other kids. That money can go towards them. If they don't get the, you know, the same sort of financial aid or if they go to college and your firstborn doesn't, there, there are at least options for that money and how it can be used in, in other ways. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but as far as your goals, as far as how much money to have in that account, I like where your head's at. Uh, the idea of trying to get that account into that $35,000 range, but not too far beyond it. I, th- I think that makes a ton of sense. I'm certainly not trying to save up six figures for each one of my kids, right? So what, six figures times four? <laughs> That's a ton of money. My goal ideally is to have somewhere like I'm thinking in, in the forty to fifty, sixty thousand dollar range in there. And honestly, that's something, so kind of going back to Teresa's question, that's something that we front loaded, right? We had a couple of years where we made a good bit more than we normally did. Like earlier, I mentioned that some of the different goals, like I almost see them as buckets that flow into one another. And so like the first bucket that got filled up, Roth IRA, sweet. Next bucket, investment property, sweet. In, in, in this case, we weren't pursuing any more investment property. So another bucket that opened up, 529 accounts. And so the ability for us to max those out for a couple of years. Personally, I'm not, hopefully, not going to have to put too much more money into those accounts because I'm counting on the dollars in there to continue to grow because yes. they are invested. And so that's something to note is you, you might need to contribute far less in order to get to that actual number if you are fully investing that money as opposed to it sitting more conservatively. But in your case, you're likely going to have something like 17-ish years to grow in the market. When you run the numbers, $100 a month for about 18 years, that's going to likely be right at that sweet spot of around $35,000 with compounding returns of 5% factored in, which is pretty conservative. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that Put your mind at ease from a, a budgeting standpoint, because I'm not going to say that 100 bucks a month, that's not nothing. But it also seems pretty reasonable when considering the insane cost of college and where it's likely yeah. to go. And uh, it's not going to be enough to foot the whole bill no, for no. a lot of schools um, if there's not major financial financial aid attached to it. But the, the truth is, there are all sorts of ways to get financial aid. Yes. Oversaving yep. is a potential risk. Um, but if that, if that I, I like that, Matt. If that's your goal, 35K, if that's kind of the sweet spot you're aiming for, well, 100 bucks a month um, into, into one of those age-based portfolios that's super low cost through a 529 plan can be the way to get there. It's kind of a tried and true path <laughs> based on yeah. when you run the numbers that you're that's a, that's probably close to where you're going to end up. Absolutely. And I think that's going to give you all a lot of flexibility and a lot of options uh, when it comes to how it is that you're going to spend that money. Joel, let's hear from another listener who happens to be from one of my favorite cities to, that I like to visit. Hi, Joel and Matt. This is Trish from Asheville, North Carolina. I'm really enjoying your podcast and have learned so much. Here's my question. My husband and I sold our house this calendar year for an amount higher than the $500,000 deductible. So we are looking for ways to reduce our tax burden. We have discussed contributing the 30,000 times two to our 401k slash IRA. We have also discussed energy saving ideas for our rental homes. We just don't know what the max is on that. If you have any other ideas, we would greatly appreciate it. We realize we have approximately 50 days to make these decisions. Uh, look forward to, looking forward to hearing your answers. Thanks so much. Ah, uh, Matt, Asheville, beer heaven. It's also Beer City, USA. It's a beautiful place, right? <laughs> beautiful part of the country. Uh, and so, yeah, Trish, let's get to your question. You, you mentioned you sold your home for a massive profit, which is awesome. And yes, you're going to have a tax bill, but really I would consider this a success tax. And we should discuss exactly how taxes work when you sell a home though, because there's a lot of confusion. Basically, when you sell a primary home, you actually don't typically owe tax on the increase in value unless the value has increased substantially. So maybe where you're at in Nashville, maybe uh, you, you bought 
long enough ago or the market has been so red fiery hot that you've actually managed to exceed this number creating this tax bill. So you mentioned that you and your husband pocketed more than $500,000 in profit and married folks are going to owe tax on profit exceeding that number, right? Single folks are going to owe tax on profit exceeding half of that, $250,000. And by the way, the number isn't just over the amount you paid when you bought the home. It's in excess of what's known as the cost basis. And so your cost basis can be increased by including fees and expenses associated with the purchase of the home and combined with the the home improvements you might have made as well. That's right. Yeah. So not just the, so we're, we're talking about transaction costs uh, when it comes to the purchase and sale of that home, but also all the work that you've done along the way. Don't disclude that or you're going to pay too much in tax. Exactly. Yeah. So let, let's just imagine and this is yeah, silly hypothetical, but like let's say you bought a home for $100,000, you sold it for 1 million. Well, married and single folks are going to have a pretty large tax bill. Uh, let's say if you bought it for $100,000, let's say you put $400,000 into it. In that case, married folks would still be able to sell that property without incurring any tax bill whatsoever. And so hopefully you you do have good records of any of the work, any of the improvements that you've made, because by proving that you've increased the cost basis of your home, is which is what you're doing by keeping track of those expenses, you're able to decrease the ultimate capital gains that you're going to have to pay. Yeah. So for instance, Matt, the house that we moved from when we moved up here to the Burbs, what, last summer, it, we had put a significant amount of money into the home, remodeling it. Right now, it's a rental property. At some point, we'll sell it. But that big chunk of money that we threw into the home, well, that's going to help reduce capital gains costs that we ha- we might have on that home if it sells for more than we think it would. Are you going to sell it? That's actually, that's the big question. That's right? a big question, too. Because yeah. yeah. that's, so, I mean, we did... I don't, I don't know the answer. <laughs> we did sell ours and the ability to go back. This is why it's, it pays to be a money nerd, right? The ability to go back and look at Excel docs and, and see not only how much we paid on each one of these different projects in a renovation, but then to be able to add that up and realize, oh, wow, we had a lot into that home. The ability to prove that we did not exceed that $500,000 as yeah. a married couple was huge. Yeah, yeah. And it's, a, it's, a, it's just a massive benefit that is worth, seriously worth looking at, seriously worth considering. And it's it's a part of why the IRS only allows folks to do, to do that every two years. Yeah. It's less of a concern now that home values have kind of tapered off a little bit. But over the past decade, the dramatic rise in prices, I mean, folks were looking to maximize this benefit. And if they had the ability to move every year and pocket a bunch of money after doing renovations and then selling that home, I think they would have. Well, this is where live-in flips, like what our friend Carl does, 100%. can be, depending on how the market goes, market conditions where you live, and, and how good you are at DIY you know, craftsmanship around the house, this can be one of those great ways to make tax-free income. And it's something he's done. We talked with him, I don't remember what episode that was, about that like in depth, and it's something he's we'll done to it. really, really well with over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay, let's talk about maybe lowering, lessening the tax bill, besides just thinking about the cost basis and looking at the exact amount of money you've stuck in to improve that home or the fees uh, regarding buying and selling the home. But capital losses from other investments can be used to offset the capital gains from the sale of your home too. So let's say, just hypothetical here, you bought Bitcoin at the top, right? You've been looking for an excuse to dump it. Now might be a great time to sell, right? And take a loss because it'll save you money come tax time and it's allowing you to get rid of an investment you no longer have much use for, right? It helps you to cancel out some of the positive capital gains from the house sale that you're going to see. So it's a way of having that tax break yeah, be the gift that keeps on giving, I guess. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> That's the silver lining for having bought Bitcoin at the top. Yeah. Uh, but when it comes to, to Trish... Still a bad money move, right? <laughs> but at least it's saving you a little bit on taxes. Yeah. So the, uh, the, the large capital gains that she's experienced, let's say you exceed that $500,000 like, like Trish has... Well, you're not paying ordinary income taxes on those gains either. You're, you're actually paying long-term capital gains. Uh, that tax rate's typically at 15%. So in that semi-extreme hypothetical $100,000 to $1 million example, the gain is $400,000. Well, the tax bill would simply be $60,000. And that's actually that's relatively good news because lots of high earners who are selling an expensive home that has seen a lot of appreciation are often in a higher tax bracket. It might be taxed double that or yeah. something uh, on some of those dollars. And so the long-term capital gains rate is more favorable. Yeah. And Trish mentioned socking more money into tax advantage retirement accounts. Those 
that's a move that we're always going to be behind, the yeah. ability to reduce your, your AGI, your tax burden in that way. But as far as making some of those green upgrades to different rental properties, that, could, again, given the different tax incentives that the government has dangled in front of us, especially folks who have who own homes, and the desire for some folks to want to uh, shift towards greener energy upgrades, that could be a good way to to pay less in tax. But I wouldn't necessarily pursue those things unless that is something that you ultimately want to, like that there are improvements that you know you need to make anyway. Uh, so I wouldn't necessarily, I guess, go out of my way to make some of those improvements. But if that's something you were already planning to do, I think that can definitely be some a great tax saving move to make as well. But that being said, actually, you got to keep in mind the particulars of the uh, all of, of all the different things that were rolled into the Inflation Reduction Act, which is where some of these green energy credits uh, come from, a lot of them only apply to your primary residence, not yeah. necessarily to rentals. And so it kind of, it's, it's a whole other can of worms, I guess. Yeah, um, you're not going to get at that extra sweet 30% bonus. Like, yeah. Like, I did a couple of those things actually this year, Matt. We put in like one of those duckless mini splits and we, yeah. we did. Uh, they so, paid you to stick that thing in. <laughs> right. We did some extra insulation. <laughs> no, it still costs me money. Not quite. But, yeah. the, but the federal <laughs> government is definitely lifting 30% of that load, uh, which is which is nice. So, but the, the problem is it doesn't work the same way if you're a landlord trying to do that to a rental property. You, you don't qualify for the same tax credits. It's important to note that. That's right. Cool. We've got more to get to, uh, including we're going to talk about a listener who has recently found herself in possession of more money than she thought. We'll get to that plus another right after this. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. That's why you listen to this podcast. And if you're looking to upgrade your wallet, you need to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. If you're paying for vacations with whatever card is in your wallet, you could be missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. You can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade, lounge access... Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Kachava is the all-in-one superfood shake made up of high-quality plant-based nutrients. It's got greens, superfruits, plant proteins, antioxidants, adaptogens, probiotics, and in other words, everything your body craves to feel your best. This is where Kachava really earns their 52,000 plus five-star reviews. It tastes amazing. It's creamy and smooth with just water, and it comes in five delicious flavors. You can choose from chocolate, vanilla, chai, matcha, and coconut acai. Kachava is offering How to Money listeners 10% off for a limited time. I've been using Kachava in breakfast smoothies in the morning recently. It's just so nice to pack in a bunch of nutrients early in the a.m. in a way that's satisfying and energizing. So if you want to optimize your breakfast, your workout shake, be sure to check out Kachava. Just go to Kachava dot com slash how to money that's spelled k-a-c-h-a-v-a and get 10 percent off your first order that's k-a-c-h-a-v-a dot com slash how to money joel so we were just recounting our trip to scotland this is the trip that we took this time last year actually with some of our friends over the weekend and one of the highlights from edinburgh was stumbling upon the absolute best meat pie shop. Mm -hmm. They were fresh out of the oven. They had that perfectly flaky crust. But guess what? That serendipitous experience would never have happened if we'd stayed at a boring hotel. We had found the perfect flat in the coolest part of town, thanks to Airbnb. Ah, oh, Matt, I'm still dreaming about those meat pies. You're making, my, <laughs> you're making me drool. And while turning to Airbnb might be a no-brainer when you're looking to spend some money on travel, it might not be the first thing you think of when you're looking to make some money. Why let it sit empty, your house, when it could be earning extra income, though? It's the financially smart thing to do. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra dough. Yeah, that's right. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right, Matt, we're back. we got more money-saving content to cover on this episode. 
And you mentioned a listener has more money than she thought. She didn't like mug anybody or anything, did she? No, 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 no. That's not how the money recommended. And it's more than finding a 20 in the winter jacket that yeah. she recently pulled out of the closet. More than that. Yeah, no, it's a good one. <laughs> and it's, I think, a trick that a lot of people can use to their advantage. But in this section of the podcast, we're going to cover a Facebook question of the week. But also, like, there's, we get some really good emails sometimes, Matt. And so uh, listener Courtney sent this via email. She said, I'm a little surprised. I haven't uh, ever once heard you mention long-term disability insurance. Of course, I haven't listened to every back episode, so you probably have at some point. I've heard you mention life insurance many times, though, but never long-term disability, which is interesting because it's probably as important, if not more. If you become disabled and lose your ability to earn, it's not just your dependents that are screwed, but also you, yourself. And there's often a, a ton of new expenses when you become disabled, medical costs, home modifications, plus things that were once luxuries like grocery delivery become essential. So, Matt, I think um, Courtney, her statement not a question here, is really helpful for all of us, for you and me and for How to Money listeners. I mean, uh, basically, she mentions that she was suddenly disabled in this email by a chronic illness and that it decimated her finances. Mm -hmm. And she said, I tell my friends all the time to make sure they get long-term disability insurance. And I think she's spot on. It's something that you and I have covered just rarely, just highly infrequently. And it's probably yeah. something we should mention more. Yeah. And Courtney, I, I hate that you've gone through both the physical and the financial pain of this disability. And it's true. Life insurance, it, it gets all of the press, largely because literally everyone will die at some point. So because of that, it's understandably on our radar more. There were actually, we talked to Old Testament earlier, Matt. Uh, there, there were a couple of guys in the Old Testament who didn't die, right? <laughs> that's so true, That's true. I guess if you're one of the... One rare. of the four. Yeah. Uh, but there are a decent chunk of folks who are going to become disabled. Uh, and so because of that, disability insurance should at least be a real consideration for a lot of folks. Stats show that a quarter of Americans are going to experience a disability, a disability, can't even say that right, uh, that keeps them out of work for three months or longer. And uh, like your situation, Courtney, most of those come from an illness, not necessarily an accident, which means that we're all vulnerable. It's not just the folks who happen to enjoy skydiving or something like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so while your workplace might offer some kind of disability insurance, it's oftentimes usually short term. And I, I'm glad that this is something that you've brought to our attention. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a good time to talk about long-term disability. For sure. Yeah. If you're a W-2 worker, you might have some coverage. It's still probably not enough. If you work for yourself uh, or you are a freelancer, the chance you don't have any coverage like and you've got to go yeah you got to go buy it on the open marketplace and because of how much savings by the way we want our listeners to have on hand it's likely unnecessary for most how to money listeners if you follow through on that to have a short-term disability policy we're, we're talking about the one with the duck yeah <laughs> right yeah you don't want that one that one costs typically a lot of money and we'd rather have you have savings on hand so to avoid some sort of short-term disability claim long-term disability though is different right it's far more necessary and it's important to mention that these policies aren't inexpensive right they're not cheap but you can yeah. you, know, you can shop on a site like policy genius but you're typically talking about spending somewhere in the neighborhood of one to three percent of your annual income to pay for this policy and again, that's because there are so many claims, so something like one in four or one in five people are actually uh, finding themselves in need of this insurance. That's why it's not quite as cheap. Uh, one other insurance policy, although it's not foolproof though, is to have more cash on hand in savings, right? So uh, instead of having three to four months worth of living expenses, knowing the expensive reality that a disability could create in your life, you might want to save like 10 to 12 months up. Instead, it's 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 not going to be as robust of a financial backstop, but uh, I really do think, yeah, savings alone isn't going to cut it for a whole lot of people on this front. It's nice to have more savings. It's nice in particular to be able to self-insure against short-term disability. But when it comes to long-term dis disability, if you can't do the job that you're currently doing because of some sort of illness that besets you for years and years on end, that long-term disability policy is going to become priceless. You're going to be thrilled, actually, that you paid those semi-expensive premiums because of what it affords you in the aftermath of one of those accidents. That's right. Yeah. So that being said, this might be an instance where uh, we ask you to do what we say and not what we do, <laughs> what we do, because it oftentimes comes down to risk and your willingness to accept that risk. And I say that as a podcaster, like we basically, Joel, you and I, like we are in the knowledge Knowledge work is basically mm -hmm. what we do. Uh, our jobs aren't specifically tied to our physical ability oftentimes to do the work that we do. Were we to become disabled, injured, sick, there's a good chance that I would be able to continue to podcast, which is my main gig these days. 
And so something for folks out there to consider is how dependent on your physical movement is the work that you do. So for instance, like if you are a physical therapist or like a coach or even a home builder of high-end homes that requires you to be there in person, your ability to move around and physically lift things up and all the things that you do. Swing a hammer. It's going to require you to be physically well. And in that instance, I could see long-term disability being something that someone in that position would want to prioritize more. But I also think about too, like why like why else haven't I personally gotten long-term disability? And it's also because of my relational status. I've got a wife, Kate, and were I to become disabled, I would 100% know that she would be more than willing to work and to basically, for me to fall back on and the ability for her to earn some income when I may not be able to is sort of another way that I am personally able to assume yeah. some of that risk. If you're single, you have even more risk in this front Yeah, problem, right? 100%. And so. so those are just a couple instances. I guess, too, if you are an individual where you make a ton of money and your partner doesn't have the ability to come anywhere near matching what it is that you're making. Like if you are like a heart surgeon or something like that. Okay, that might be something that you might want to consider because your ability to earn a large income is unparalleled. Yeah. <laughs> and so the ability to offset that uh, with some long-term disability would probably be a lot money well spent. Yeah, and so even though we read the stat, you're right, like one in four people is going to experience some sort of disability that could impact their ability to make, make an income. That risk also varies depending on what you do and uh, all the above, right? But um, and, and kind of maybe how scrappy your mindset is as well, because I feel like there might be some folks who think this is all I ever have one, wanted to do. Whereas I guess my background, I think of all the different kind of jobs and industries that I've been in, and I think, okay, if I for some reason could no longer talk, I'll find something else to do. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to find a new best buddy, but uh, well, you know, I've got some. Of the good worst. luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I, 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 because this is like one of those things, like Courtney said, like it's unexpected, right? And sure. And there are additional costs that you incur before you just kind of dismiss it out of hand. I think a lot of people should at least consider it and look into it. should seriously right? consider it. Yeah. Consider it. Yep. And and when you're looking into policy, by the way, know the details of any of the policy that policies that you're considering purchasing, right? There are lots of specifics that are crucial to understand, like whether or not you're going to be covered by an inability to do your current job or whether the insurance company will you know want to ensure that your injury prevents you from doing any job. Mm -hmm. So there are different classifications. You probably want the kind of insurance, it'll probably cost a little bit more, where the insurance company says, oh, you became disabled? Well, but wait a second, we think you can do this job over here. And you're like, but no, what? No, like that's not, that's, that that can be a sticking point in some of these policies. Also, know how long the payments are going to last, right? Is this coverage for five years or until you reach retirement age? And uh, yeah, so you can, you can also get long-term disability insurance via your employer, but there are some downsides to that, including a tax downside, but another downside is not being able to take it with you when you leave. So we would say shop on the open market through an aggregator site like Policy Genius. That's going to be the best way to, to score one of these long-term disability policies. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned how long that benefit lasts. Uh, one of the other ways you can get the cost down to is by, there's this thing called the elimination period, which is the period of time from when you get disabled to before the benefits kick in. And oftentimes it's sort of like a premium uh, I'm sorry, you're deductible like on car insurance. Yeah. And by default, oftentimes it's set really low because that's what looks attractive, but it's also what costs the most. Same thing is true when it comes to these el- elimination periods where oftentimes the default will be 30 days. But if you can triple that and you bump that out to 90 days, all of a sudden your monthly premiums go down significantly. So if it is something that you say, that is not a risk I am willing to assume. I do want to get long-term disability. There are ways like that where you are able to get the yeah. cost down to where it's not as egregiously expensive. That's where you want that combo of like self-insuring. You want skin in the game because that's going to reduce your cost on the insurance that you might actually need. So Courtney, thank you for your email. Thank you for reminding us to talk about this because we don't talk about it often enough. And good luck to all you How to Money listeners out there looking at looking into these long-term disability policies. And Matt, let's do one thing, one last thing real quick. On Facebook this week, Jessica mentioned PSA, to anyone new to budgeting like me, I just discovered that since my husband gets paid every other Friday, there are two months every year (laughs) where he gets paid three times. Game-changing revelation. So there's not a ton here to say, except for the fact that using an idiosyncrasy like this to your financial advantage, it just makes a lot of sense. It's it's purely a psychological play, because why not use that irregular pay cycle as a way to beef up your savings, uh, or even just to make a lump sum contribution to your retirement account? Uh, You can either plan for it, which is kind of the boring way. And plus, that's kind of difficult to do when you're budgeting 
these two odd months where you get paid a little bit more, or you pretend it doesn't even exist. You plan and you budget based on the typical months, and then whenever that additional money does get infused into your account, you can take that money and use it towards achieving some of those other financial yeah. goals that you have. Like, like a lump sum toss out of debt or yeah, a lump some sum student loans. thrusting into the Roth IRA, whatever mm-hmm. it is. I like that I too. Love it. And and again, you're right. It's psychological, right? It's not like you're actually making more progress than you otherwise would, but you're you're learning to live on less than you make. And you're also able to take a bigger bite out of some of those goals in one fell swoop, which can feel really rewarding. So I like that too. It, it's it reminds me of a tax refund, right? which is similar in that way. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of people, a lot of you know, personal finance experts, they hate the tax refund because it's this tax, tax-free tax loan to the government is what they call it, right? Yeah, Interest, interest-free loan. Interest-free loan, excuse me. It's not that it's something we recommend getting some sort of massive tax refund. I mean, from an optimization standpoint, it's not the best approach. But from a cycle, and, and I guess right now with interest rates going up on savings, like it, it's an even worse it approach. It might be costing you a little bit more yeah. than, <laughs> than otherwise. When savings rates were half a percent, it was like, yeah, hey, you're not really missing out on much. But from a psychological point of view, it can be a forced method of saving. So for Jessica, for everyone else out there, using irregular paychecks, unexpected bonuses, and tax refunds, right, uh, to reach a financial goal more quickly, it can be smart. Just don't use those lump sum payments to consume. Find it as a this forced method, like I said, of a way to achieve something that normally you felt might be off limits or might be difficult to hit. But those lump sums, when they hit your bank account, it can feel like, oh, cool, now we've got the, the room to actually meet that goal. Or here, you know what? I actually will disagree with Joel. And I'll say, if you want to intentionally use that money to consume in a meaningful way, like, hey, that's how you're able to fund, say, a, most of your summer vacation or something like that. I'm all for that. I'm all for however you can mentally account for this money and use it to your advantage. As long as you're doing the saving and investing with the regular paychecks. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That comes first. If you're not doing that and you're using this as the way to meet those savings or investing goals that you otherwise wouldn't be able to hit, then you don't want to funnel it towards a vacation. But if you've done the right stuff with the the regular every two-week paychecks, then yeah, you can use it for fun. Yeah, and if you haven't reached your retirement goals, then yes, use this money to make sure that your Roth IRA is maxed out. I think whatever strategies you can employ to make sure that this is working for you, I'm going to get behind whatever approach you decide to take yeah. because everyone's different. So, all right, let's get back to our beer, buddy. This was, uh, how'd you call it, what, pronounce it? La Cumbre? Yeah, Malpais Stout. Malpais. This is a stout that is brewed there, let's see, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I also see on the can, too, that they won a silver medal back in 2011. Nice. So, yeah, this is a this is an award-winning beer, Joel. What were your thoughts? I've never been to Albuquerque, but it's on my it's on my to-hit-up list. Ever since we talked with the couple that drove around in the van. Oh, yeah. You remember? What were their names? Uh, I, can't, I can't believe I forget. That was early on. That was years. Chris, Christy and... Uh, I don't remember. Chris? Chris. Chris. I think it was Chris yeah, and Christy. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> that was years ago. We'll link to that one as well, but yeah. uh, that was back when the living in your van, the, that nomadic life was pretty huge and they basically got to share their experience and they were talking about how albuquerque how they loved it there yeah and how they thought they would end up end up living there once they did that decide was, to settle down that was definitely like peak van life right there <laughs> totally but, um yeah no so this beer was really good and uh you i dug I, it i did it's like classic milk stout uh, nice body is it a milk stout I, it tasted like a milk stout okay. to me it doesn't say it doesn't does um, it have actual lactose in it i don't know i'm not really sure but um it, <laughs> it again it tasted like a milk stout and i'd say it was not too thick but it, which made it like especially for this time of year kind of early fall it's kind of what you want yeah kind of a perfect fit for the first out of the season at some point in december january i'll be drinking the heavies the big barrel aged ones but for now this is like the perfect caloric calorically concentrated beers that we'll be enjoying in the winter exactly no yeah it it had all those dark and roasty flavors if you're into that so for instance if you like this like a starbucks french roast or something like that this is totally a beer i think that you'd enjoy but it's funny that on the label it's I, i guess their slogan is get elevated and I'll say that the beer, it had like a nice lift to it. it the, so the carbonation that accompanied the darker, roasty notes made it very enjoyable. Yeah. Because it wasn't, it's like the opposite of um, Guinness. It, it feels kind of flat Guinness in, is your, very, in your mouth. Like it's smooth. Yeah, it's good, but it doesn't have that lift. And with this, you totally feel it on your tongue uh, in, in conjunction with those darker flavors. But I enjoyed it. And yeah. Bob... Thanks again for all the beers that you sent our way. It's always nice to enjoy beers that are being produced in a different part of the country. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Again, New Mexico. It's on my short list. Got to make it out there. Let's do it. Uh, I've, been, I've been once, but only to Gallup, New Mexico. My uncle lived there for a little while, but I haven't been to really any other parts. And 
got to hit those up. So You and me. Let's do Albuquerque. Okay, I'm in. Without the wives? <laughs> Just dudes trip to Albuquerque? We've never really done a boys trip before. Yeah. All we right. Because you, our, our you wives got to, to know each arm. other. <laughs> you have to twist my wife's arm. We, like, we all got to know each other at the same time, so anytime we would go on little trips or even big trips, it was always the four of us. Yeah. But we, maybe we should take a boys trip one right. of these days. Can we rent motorcycles? Oh. Sounds like somebody should be following us with <laughs> making a documentary. Right. I'm thinking of, is it Ewan McGregor where he did that? Oh, the... that's right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's going to be it for this episode, buddy. Until next time. Best friends out. Best friends out. Yeah, boy. <laughs> Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilbur Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. I got a big heart, and I'm very forgiving, but, like, don't abuse it. It's been abused enough. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one.